Comics. Comics. Welcome to ORP, otherwise known as Omen Revelations Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Nunley. And I'm your co-host, uh, Steve Sellers. On ORP, we like to talk about geek stuff, pop culture, including movies and TV series, as well as comic books and comic characters. Uh, but that's not all, is it, Mike? No, it's not, Steve. We're also writers for Omen, Omen Comics and Revelation Comics. So we like to talk about both writing and our comics. So podcast and chill with us. Today on ORP, Steve and I are going to be talking about our favorite directors and the influences that these directors have had on us creatively. Now, I have to tell you that me and Steve really love movies, <laughs> and making our list of favorite directors ended up being pretty long, especially when we're going to be talking about their films. Uh, so we decided to narrow it down to two directors each and three movies from each director. But I believe there were some things you wanted to say before we got started, Steve. Sure. Um, I imagine that many of our listeners are probably curious about the kind of creators that influence us, whether it's comics, films, or anything else that we watch. Um, I know that Mike and I tend to arrive at similar conclusions from different starting points, so I expect our list probably will come from a similar place. Um, as always, though, I want to preface our list with the usual disclaimer. I mean, these are our personal lists of what directors and films we love, and we're aware that a list like this can be very subjective. Uh, given that we're only featuring two favorite directors from each of us, it's easy to leave out a lot of really talented filmmakers from this list, including people we're both huge fans of. Um, I honestly had trouble just picking two directors to cover in this episode because I had several candidates for my number two choice. But before we get into my final choices, Mike, uh, do you want uh, to, to get us started? Uh, what director did you want to talk about first? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I have to say that you're 100% right about what films I'm going to choose and that they are both directors that you and I love as well. Um, what is more that I, I also had a difficult time choosing the two I wanted to talk about because of all the conversations we've already had about the two that I chose. Um, but here we go. I will start off with one that I happen to know we're both a big fan of, and that is Sir Ridley Scott. And yes, it is Sir Ridley Scott. He was actually knighted by Queen Elizabeth II for his services to the British film industry in 2003. Uh, Ridley Scott is, I think, best known for his highly visual storytelling, wide panel shots, his absolute control of the camera, lighting, and pacing. Scott likes to, in his words, just let the story unfold. One of the things I can say all of, of the three films I'm going to bring up as favorites is that Ridley Scott really wants to suck you into the world and he does it by his wide paneled and distant shots that really just allow you to visually take it all in. But he also knows when a nice close-up will really hit hard. That's a huge part of why his films are so captivating. He accomplishes this by meticulously storyboarding every shot before filming ever begins. Ridley Scott can actually draw, and he storyboards very well. He is highly influenced by comics like Heavy Metal Magazine, so you can see why having that comic book influence can transfer over to be good at storyboarding, especially when he does it for, I think, for every movie. Uh, he's gotten quite skilled at it. 
in 2015, Ridley Scott said that I think I'm blessed by the fact that I can draw. I've got an inner eye, definitely. At first, I wasn't aware of it. And then after 2000 commercials, there was a reason I was so busy. I was the most visual of all the directors. That's why I didn't start filming until I was 40. I certainly appreciated what I had and I started acknowledging it, uh, embracing it and using it. I think visually, uh, but I'm good with words and I'm helpful with writers because I talk to them visually when I'm working. Um, another big thing that is going to come up again and again is his control of the camera, which is rooted in his storyboarding. As an example, I I would like to point you to the action scenes in Ridley Scott's films. There can be total chaos erupting on the screen, but you don't get lost in all that is going on. I will also say that I have come to understand that Ridley Scott is a micromanager and is difficult to work with. On the flip side of that, I have heard from Scott's own mouth that he deliberately does things to antagonize actors and get strong emotional responses from them, and even pulls tricks on them to get a good surprise reaction. As we mentioned in the Blade Runner episodes, there were several people that flat out quit working in film altogether after working with Ridley on Blade Runner, and things were not much better on Alien. <laughs> However, no one can deny the quality of his work, and that's why he's still making movies. The man is a master of his art, and he should be. He has produced 155 times. He has 57 director credits, including 25 films, 18 credits as a production designer, and even five writer credits. Yeah. Ridley Scott is an excellent choice, and one that I can't argue with at all. Uh, Blade Runner is one of my favorite film franchises, and Ridley Scott's brilliant work on the first film is a large part of the reason why that is. Uh, his meticulous approach to filmmaking, encouraging a certain amount of method in his actors, has gotten some really strong results, um, You know, even if it might have put some people off. And I'm pretty sure some of your picks are likely to be films that I like as well, but we'll go into those specifically when we get there. Um, I also respect his work a great deal, even if I don't always think it lands. Uh, Prometheus, for instance, is a movie that I think is conceptually really powerful, even if it takes issues with, even if I take issues with the execution of it. Um, I'll talk more about that when we get into the Alien franchise, but my point is, is that even his worst films are usually of the interesting failure variety, which honestly is my favorite kind of bad movie. And his best movies range from really good to epic. I have to agree with that. Most of Ridley Scott films I have seen, I have watched many times and still enjoy. But there are a few films from him that I enjoyed watching once, but will not likely watch again, like, like say, G.I. Jane or like 1492 Conquest of Paradise, for instance. Uh, th those, are, those are good films, but I just... I just don't need to keep seeing them. Uh, that It was just a one-time thing. Uh, but I have yet to see a movie from him that I thought was bad. Uh, however, uh, to be fair, uh, I have not watched all of his films. Though he started in commercials, he went on to make some of my all-time favorite films. The first of which was Alien in 1979, and I friggin' love that movie. But there is a whole two-part episode on all six Alien films coming up in the first episode of our fourth season. So I can't dive into those here, but don't worry. You won't have to wait long. This episode right here is the last episode of our third season. Suffice it to say that Alien was a movie I watched several times as a kid. And so not only is it amazingly directed, it also holds a nostalgic place for me. Another huge favorite of mine from Ridley Scott was his next film, Blade Runner, from 1982. We already did a big old two-parter on that one, and uh, on that in our Blade Runner 40th, 40th anniversary episodes 54A and 54B. Uh, so I won't rehash that stuff here. 
But I will say that I may have only gotten into Blade Runner this year, but Ridley Scott's 1982 film has risen to my top 10 list. Um, also, I have to give a quick mention to the noir Black Rain from 1989, uh, Thelma and Louise from 1991, Kingdom of Heaven from 2005, uh, Robin Hood from 2010, which I really wish would have gotten a sequel, uh, The Martian from 2015. Um, yes, there's a lot, but he is one of my two favorite directors. Yeah, I can get fully get behind all of your sentiments, especially on Alien and Blade Runner. Um, I, I came from the other direction where I'd seen Blade Runner when I was younger and only got into Alien much later. But while I haven't seen all the movies you mentioned, I think we can definitely agree on the first Ridley Scott film uh, we want to talk about in depth. So you want to get into that? Sure. Um, I think the first movie from Ridley Scott to really catch my eye uh, when I was a boy, besides 1979's Alien, had to be Ridley Scott's fourth film, the 1985 film Legend, starring Tom Cruise as Jack of the Green, a green man of the forest, Mia Sarah, who you might recognize from Ferris Bueller's Day Off as Sloane Peterson, Ferris's girlfriend. Uh, she plays uh, Princess Lily. Uh, David Bennett as Honeythorn Gump, an elf and guardian of the forest. Alice Platon is Blix, the, the leader of Darkness's Goblin Minions, and Tim Curry in my favorite role of his as the Lord of Darkness. Granted, the amazing makeup job by Rob Bitten uh, really helped to sell it, but Curry really made you believe that whole Lord of Darkness thing. The expressions on his face when he relished every bit of evil and corruption were played to perfection. Uh, but we are talking about directors here, so I should mention that Legend is the first time I remember ever noticing uh, the direction on, even if I didn't know what it was at the time. I remember the movie looking and feeling magical and otherworldly. This was in part because of the characters, but also Ridley's highly visual style, which was all over this film. This is something that is a common thread in his films, but I feel like Legend stands up there with Blade Runner as far as examples of Scott's highly visual style. It is all about atmosphere and, and a dozen things you only notice in rewatching the films. It's really kind of baffling to me that with the popularity of fantasy films at the time, that Legend did not do better in the box office. However, despite being a huge failure when it was released in 1985, Legend has become a cult classic in the fantasy genre. Yeah, you're right that the 80s were kind of a brief resurgence for fantasy films. I mean, things like Lady Hawk, uh, Crawl, Dragon Slayer, Willow, and the like. But what uh, Ridley Scott gave us was a true live-action fairy tale, and not one of those Disney-fied fairy tales either. This is not a movie about a princess singing about her trying to find herself in true love. This is a movie about the loss of innocence, about the temptation of evil, and Mia Sarah's character choosing between good and evil. Um, Tim Curry's uh, Darkness is a truly terrifying villain, and I think it's probably the finest role he's ever done. I agree with you on that. I mean, when you think of the devil, you think of this guy. You're, you're right that the world feels magical and every frame gives you that fairy tale vibe. Uh, I genuinely loved this story when I was a kid. Uh, I watched it many times. I, I love the whole fantasy world that they had created in the mystical forest. I hadn't seen a lot of elves and goblins, and I had never heard of a green man before this film. Uh, 
I'm not a huge unicorn guy, but even they were cool in this. Uh, looking back on it, Legend is a dark fairy tale unlike any other story I have come across. Sure, it borrows elements, but when combined, uh, they make something very unique. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the film was actually Blix, uh, the leader of the goblins under the Lord of Darkness. I mean, I wasn't rooting for her or anything. I just liked the character and I thought she was funny. I'm still waiting to catch uh, the director's cut of the film, though. Um, I, I understand that's a lot better. It is on my list of movies to buy, though. Um, but how about you, Steve? Uh, was this a childhood favorite of yours, too? Oh, definitely. Um, Legend is one of those films I discovered in my teens and I still adore it. I don't remember when I ran across it. I think I probably found it in the aisle at Blockbusters back when that was a thing. And um, I was intrigued enough to rent it. And then I saw it and I couldn't get enough of that film. I mean, it, it had many of the classic fantasy elements, but it had that darker edge that you didn't often see in fantasy films of the time, or even now, honestly. I mean, I don't have enough good things to say about this film. I mean, I watched it repeatedly back in the day and I want to see it again now. <laughs> I want to see it again myself, but I could not find it streaming anywhere. I, I think I think I'm just going to have to pick up the director's cut on DVD. Uh, yep. But in the meantime, let's get into Ridley Scott's 11th film. Uh, Gladiator from 2000 uh, was written by uh, David Frizzoni, uh, John Logan and William Nicholson. Uh, the film ultimately served to revive interest in the sword and sandal adventures set in and around ancient Roman Greece. Gladiator stars Russell Crowe as Maximus Decimus Meridius, the gladiator the title refers to. Joaquin Phoenix plays Commodus, the amoral, power-hungry, and bittered son of Marcus Aurelius. Connie Nielsen plays Lucilia, Maximus's former lover and Commodus's sister. Uh, Ralph Molnir as Hagen, a Germanic warrior and Proximo's chief gladiator, who later befriends Maximus and Juba during their battles in Rome. Oliver Reed in his final role as he actually died before the movie was even finished. Uh, as Antonius uh, Proximo, an old gruff gladiator trainer who buys Maximus in North Africa. Uh, Jaiman uh, Honso as, as Juba, Maximus's closest friend and ally, and Richard Harris as Marcus Aurelius. All of those people did excellent jobs in the films, as did the choreographer for those battle, thing, battle scenes. But one of the things that really blew me away with Gladiator, surprise, surprise, was Ridley Scott's visual displays. In particular, I'm thinking uh, of those far back wide panel shots of the cityscapes. Granted, some of that was CGI and some of that was locations, but I don't care. Those shots of ancient Rome and the Colosseum are really awesome. As usual, Scott really brings you into ancient Rome in the film, like he uses stellar visuals to envelop us in all of his movies. Uh, was there any particular aspect of the film that you really enjoyed and any directorial stuff that you noticed and enjoyed, Steve? I was a huge fan of this film when it came out and I still like it. I mean, it's a classic sword and sandal story of the type that they don't make too often anymore. Uh, the opening battle against the barbarians where Maximus makes his big speech, what we do in life echoes in eternity. I mean, that's a line that really stuck with me for a very long time. I mean, the fights are big and impactful. You get some great moments out of Russell Crowe throughout this film. And I'll also add that the soundtrack by Hans Zimmer and Lisa Gerard is awesome. And there was a time I had the main battle theme from Gladiator running constantly in my playlist. And I'm not alone because um, a bunch of figure skaters did the same thing. <laughs> that tool <laughs> score adds a lot to those big action set pieces, making it all feel more epic. 100%. Actually, I'm learning more and more as I dig into movies and cinema history just how important the soundtrack is to a film. 
I mean, almost all of the emotion and intensity of the scenes is conveyed in the music, and no matter how good the actors perform their roles, uh, the movie is anemic without the music. Um, like, for instance, uh, John Carpenter showed Halloween to an executive once uh, before he added his score to the film, and she said it wasn't scary at all. Later, she saw it with the, with the score and said it was the most terrifying film she'd ever watched. Just, I mean, just... <laughs> Think about that difference there. Also, that line, uh, what we do in life echoes in eternity, not only stuck with me when I heard it, it still motivates me to this day. Uh, but let's get into the story a bit. They make a point in the movie about the importance of how one sees the position of Caesar having a large part to do with how well they will lead. When Marcus Aurelius uh, sees Lucilia, he comments on how great of a Caesar she would have made. And she says she would have been the kind of Caesar uh, he told her to be. And she saw the position as a duty to be performed, not an aspiration to attain. Maximus was given Aurelius's power because with all of his heart, he did not want the authority. Marcus Aurelius pointed out that that was exactly why it had to be him to do it. No one else would have handed over their, their authority to the Senate as Marcus Aurelius wanted. However, Maximus will always serve Rome and agreed to take on the, take on the duty for Rome. Compare those two to Commodus, who aspires to be emperor so greatly that he's willing to kill his own father for the position. But Commodus only viewed the position as a power to be wielded. All he saw was that he would be in charge and he could tell people what to do. But he didn't know anything about the responsibilities that would entail for him. And what's worse, when he did find out what responsibilities that he had to, that he was going to have to deal with, he just simply neglected them in favor of playing emperor and using the empire's resources to pay for countless games while his people were starving and dying of the plague. But as Senator Gracchus pointed out, Commodus was simply trying to distract the people with his games so that they might forget all that he was doing. Unfortunately, for a time, for the for a time, this actually works. But uh, eventually, the rooster crows and his sins are brought to bear. Yeah, I would agree that the politics of ancient Rome is one of the most believable aspects of this film. Uh, this movie also really showed me what a great actor that Joaquin Phoenix was long before Joker or any of his other really prominent films, because he really is such a great villain in this movie. Uh, Commodus is driven by envy and ambition, and he hates Maximus for being the son that Marcus Aurelius wanted, always wanted. This version seems to draw less on the historical Commodus and more on other mad emperors like Caligula and Nero, but Phoenix plays it so brilliantly that it's easy to forget all that. Commodus has the heart and mind of what an emperor should be, but Commodus has the blood with none of the heart. It's a battle between adopted brothers as much as it is a political battle for the soul of the empire. Well put, my friend, and I, I have to I have to agree uh, about Joaquin Phoenix. He he did an excellent job on this, and the Gladiator is definitely a story of sibling rivalry as well. I also noticed that there were some historical inaccuracies, uh, but I too was able to blow it off for the sake of the story. Now, for our longtime listeners, you'll remember that way back in season one, uh, that Steve and I did a whole episode on our mutual infatuation with Rome and its influences on us. So we need, they don't need to go over all of that now. Uh, but I knew, do know that while there were things that Gladiator changed about Roman history and the characters in the film, I still feel like a lot of the, the spirit and the spectacle that I imagined thinking about Rome was in this movie. I really felt like I was taken back to some extent, like I got a real taste and, and a more realistic take on Rome. But but what did you think, Steve? Um, All right. 
A lot of we see what we see in this film reflects the way Rome actually was during that period, even if they didn't play out the way they did in the movie historically. Uh, bread and circuses was really a thing, and it was designed to distract the common people away from the real problems going on in the empire. Unlike what we saw in this movie, uh, the real Commodus was active in the arena, and he even went out to fight himself. It also was a thing for a prominent and powerful general to succeed the emperor around that time. Uh, Marcus Aurelius was the last of the five good emperors, um, and the imperial succession at that time was the way it was intended to be done with Maximus. During the reign of the five good emperors, succession was chosen by the previous emperor and not predetermined by blood. There was usually a co-emperor reign that marked a transition uh, between the two reigns. The uh, tradition changed with Commodus, as was shown in the film, but again, played out differently. But honestly, I don't really care about the historical inaccuracies in this season, this film, because um, honestly, this movie feels like it could have happened even if it didn't historically. I mean, it's completely believable that a mad emperor like Commodus could go as far as he does. And it's completely believable that Maximus ends up where he does. Uh, Ridley Scott does some really good um, uh, historical work on this movie um, and very good historical films in this vein. And this is certainly among his best. This is certainly one of his best, if not the best. It is also true that liberties were taken, uh, but not all of those were necessarily bad. Like, did we really need to see gladiators promoting products and local businesses before they fought? Because commercials were a thing back then, too. And I don't think that we needed to see that. Uh, on that same coin, though, there, there's also some historically accurate things about ancient Rome that due to public perceptions of, of the time period from various films about ancient Rome or that take place there uh, that were deemed too unbelievable to accept. So I think there was definitely a balance be, uh, being chosen there. And, and I think they actually did it right. Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, sometimes you have to make compromises to make a good entertaining film. And sometimes you have to let things go and just roll with what the story is telling. But why don't we uh, talk about the next film on your list? That sounds like a good idea. Uh, Ridley Scott's 12th movie, Hannibal, came out in 2001 as a direct sequel to Silence of the Lambs, a straight-up classic film. Honestly, Scott had big shoes to fill doing a sequel to that movie as beloved as Silence of the Lambs is. And honestly, I think he did it well. Uh, did it capture the spirit of Silence of the Lambs? No, I don't think so. Uh, but I don't think that was a bad thing. Scott brought a new flavor to the series because it was a different story with Hannibal Lecter playing a much greater role. Uh, the story was based on the 1999 novel by Thomas Harris, the same guy who wrote Silence of the Lambs. Anthony Hopkins reprises his role as the upper-class intellectual serial killer Hannibal Lecter, while Julianne Moore replaces Jodie Foster as Clarice Starling. I personally prefer Foster, but I thought Moore did a good job, even if she didn't quite have the thick accent that Foster had. Uh, they are both short and believably strong women. I mean, you, you honestly believe that either of them could definitely handle themselves. I mean, they're tough. Uh, Gary Oldman plays the wicked Mason Berger. Uh, I'll say, too, that uh, with all the makeup and prosthetics I'm assuming they use uh, to depict his mangled face, I had no idea that was Gary Oldman until I saw his name in the credits. But he does a great job with his character. Ray Liotta plays quite the pig in Paul Krenler. And Giancarlo Giannini uh, plays Chief Inspector Rinaldo Pazzi. 
he, or Patsy, sorry. He was, he was, in my opinion, the grizzled but talented detective character that wasn't afraid to work outside of the lines, right down to being a smoker. Um, I, I suppose, I suppose, I have to ask you, Steve, uh, what, what did you think of Julianne Moore as Clarice Starling? Uh, Jodie Foster is probably the most iconic portrayal of Clarice, and Silence of the Lamb is a film classic. That said, I wasn't so attached to Jodie Foster that I couldn't accept someone else's Clarice if she was good enough. Julianne Moore is an actress that I respect for the many roles she's done over the years, and I thought that she slipped into the Clarice role well enough that you don't notice a huge difference unless you're actively looking for one. As for Gary Oldman, that man is a chameleon, and he's so good that he often disappears in his roles. I mean, look at his take on Winston Churchill in Darkest Hour, and tell me this is the same guy as Dracula or Commissioner Gordon. It is very difficult to tell unless you know it's him. So when I found out that Mason Verger was Gary Oldman, I wasn't too shocked. He's just an outstanding actor, and he's very good at making all of his characters noticeably different from each other. Ridley Scott gets some really good mileage out of him, too. Oh, that's a good take on that. He really does have a broad range in his acting ability. Um, but if I could talk about Ridley Scott's directing on Hannibal. Um, I talked about Scott's ability to control a scene when chaos is erupting. Well, I would point to the shootout at the beginning of Hannibal from 2001 as a great example of what I'm talking about. There are people shooting from all kinds of angles and a car driving in confined spaces as people are scrambling to stay alive and take each other out. But I can honestly say that I felt like I could keep track of what all was happening because there's a great blend of close-ups and I'll say medium back shots and, and several nice angles to capture everything. Granted, some of that magic is clearly editor Pietro Scalia and cinematographer John Mathiason, uh, but I, I submit two things. We know that Ridley Scott micromanages everything about his films, and I am certain he had absolute control over both what Mathiason uh, did uh, with the camera and Scalia's, uh, Scalia's editing. I'm not trying to diminish their input. Uh, or their skill. I'm just pointing out that Ridley Scott had the final say and it was his direction that made all of that possible by setting up the angles and shots and getting the best performances out of his actors. Uh, really, a director's job is to make sure all of the moving parts of making a film work together properly. Another great example of camera control is when Clarice opens up that envelope uh, and finds the letter from Han Hannibal. The camera drops down really quickly to a shot uh, and it just fills you with dread. I mean, the dropping of that camera along with the music right there uh, takes you right on that ride Clarice goes on there. One minute she's fine and the next her heart drops and that confidence she carries is lost for a moment. Again, that is obvious and obviously in part because of Julianne Moore, but that camera work really plays a role in that scene's emotion. Ridley Scott does some very fine camera work and it shows in this film. I, I feel like he does a really good job of establishing tension, even in the smaller scenes. The dinner table scene at the end, correct being the most obvious one, you know the shoe is going to drop and Hannibal is going to make his move. But the way it's shot keeps the tension throughout until the shoe does finally drop. But I think you have something else you wanted to say about that scene, Mike. Oh, I absolutely do. <laughs> I absolutely have to talk about the scene at the end where Hannibal Lecter has drugged both Clarice Starling, Starling and Paul Krendler with morphine and, and cut off the top of Paul's head. <laughs> I have watched a lot of horror movies. Just trust me on that one. And I can't think of many scenes as messed up as being fed cooked pieces of your own brain. Uh, watching Lecter cut out chunks of his frontal lobe, uh, not just to feed to Paul, which... 
which is is sick all by itself. <laughs> that is just, I mean, damn. Uh, but also to eat later on the plane and apparently feed to a child. <laughs> you see Starling barely able to stop herself from throwing up. I mean, you know that is going to stick with her for the rest of her life. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you don't mess with Hannibal if you don't want to end up as his next meal. <laughs> he's, he's a really he's a really frightening character when played well, and I think that's one of the nastiest things he's ever done. And given how dark Hannibal can be, that is really saying something. Oh, it really is. And actually, I hadn't quite thought about it like that before, but it really is one of Hannibal's darkest moments. Uh, but we talked about sharing how these things, how these directors have influenced influenced us as creators, and I would like to talk about that now in regards to Ridley Scott. As far as his influences on me as a writer, I would have to say the biggest things I have learned from him can probably seen be seen more in my comic book writing. I write comics as if I'm directing a movie, making sure there's enough room for the art and the lettering and that the pacing is maintained. I often use large panels to describe the angles. I want I want the view from, and I also use very detailed descriptions of what I see. Uh, I do my best to pull in the reader visually as much as I can and, and put in as much world building and character building as I can squeeze into each panel. Uh, I think that shows, especially in some of the horror scenes you've written. I mean, I think some of your scenes with Patrick O'Leary particularly do come across in that way, like uh, Gallows Men number two. Ah, thank you. I appreciate that, my friend. But how about we get into your first pick as a director, uh, Steve? Uh, my all-time favorite director is a pretty easy choice, and that's Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, I got into his films when I was fairly young and into my teens, and he's only some gotten more interesting over time for me. Uh, my mother wanted me to watch some of the older stuff, and I kind of started with The Trouble with Harry and then the 1956 version of The Man Who Knew Too Much, um, a film that Hitchcock made twice, which is why I have to make that distinction. But the personal favorites, uh, the one we'll be uh, discussing, came into his late period around the 1950s and early 60s. Um, Hitchcock's output is pretty legendary, including over 50 feature films over a span of 60 years, as well as an anthology show uh, called Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Um, his first film was a, a German-British production in 1925 called The Pleasure Garden, which led into a number of British-produced films, including uh, The Lodge or uh, Blackmail, which was the first uh, British talkie film, and The 39 Steps. Uh, you can find these early films in the public domain, and they're freely available to watch on YouTube. Uh, they're not the best things that Hitch ever did, but you'll see the promising start of a young filmmaker who was still trying to find his voice around that time. Um, from there, uh, Hitchcock made his transition to American filmmaking around 1939 uh, when he moved over to Hollywood and started there. Uh, the first film he made was Rebecca, which is an adaptation of the Daphne, uh, Daphne du Maurier novel, starring Sir uh, Laurence Olivier and John Fontaine, who was the sister of Olivia de Havilland. Um, I recommend that one strongly, by the way. Um, the film won an Academy Award uh, for Best Picture. Um, Hitchcock was nominated for Best Director for Rebecca, but he never won. Um, he spent the next two decades trying to make film after film, but he never received a, a Best Director Award for any of those either, no matter how acclaimed they were. But uh, he made some very popular films for their day, I mean, mainly suspense films. Though, as we discussed with Psycho, Hitchcock played a very large role in starting the slasher subgenre horror. Uh, before uh, I get into my favorite Hitchcock films, though, uh, did you have anything you wanted to say about him as a director? Sure. Uh, first, I have to say that I appreciate your love of the classics. 
Also, Alfred Hitchcock is a great choice. I will admit, I have not seen many of Hitchcock's 50 freaking films. I actually had no idea he even made so many, uh, but 50 is a whole heck of a lot. Uh, what I can say about Alfred Hitchcock is that he was original and inventive and, and an extremely seminal director. Many of my favorite directors trace their roots back to Hitchcock and cite his films, particularly Psycho and the Birds, as things they are trying to emulate or pay homage to in their films. They call it a Hitchcockian style. So even if I may not know about all of Hitchcock's films, I certainly have a lot of respect for Alfred Hitchcock and his influence on some of my favorite movie makers. But why don't you go ahead and dive right, in, right on into your favorite films by the master himself, Steve? Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, the first Hitchcock film I want to mention is North by Northwest, which was released in 1959, a whole year before Psycho came out. Uh, this is one of my all-time favorite films, and I usually try to slip it into my favorite list where I can. Uh, one of the main reasons for this is that North by Northwest was the blueprint for the modern spy film. Uh, this movie was a huge influence on the uh, James Bond franchise with its blend of action, intrigue, and sex appeal. In fact, uh, Cary Grant, the star of North by Northwest and a recurring Hitchcock actor, was considered for the role of James Bond at one point. Um, Ian Fleming even name-dropped Grant in the novel version of Goldfinger, and Grant was the best man at the wedding of Alfred Broccoli, who was the producer of uh, 007. Uh, Grant was approached at one point to play Bond. Unfortunately, he was only really willing to do one film, and by then he was pushing 58 and was aging past the role. Still, Cary Grant was without question the template for who the James Bond of the early films became. Uh, there are other reasons for this as well. I mean, North by Northwest, I mean, up the action quota to the point where it became one of the first action super spy films. The classic airplane chase where Cary Grant is on the run from the crop duster plane trying to kill him was a huge influence on later action films. Um, big set pieces like that simply had not been done before, and Hitchcock upped the ante in terms of what was possible in an action film. Uh, the Mount Rushmore chase at the end also had a huge impact on uh, later films as well. Also, uh, North by Northwest is a very romantically charged film, uh, mainly built on the very strong chemistry between uh, Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint. That relationship and the strong sexual overtones would certainly influence the Bond series, which got away with a lot more in the free love 60s. <laughs> um, all, all the pieces are there for the spy films that came later. I mean, the suave, charismatic anti-hero, the mysterious and seductive love interest, the manipulative spy master that the hero works for, the over-the-top villains with audacious plans, and action-packed conflict. I mean, modern spy films owe a great deal to Hitchcock, and this was the movie that perfected the formula. Um, and the, the premise is also really good and still holds up. I mean, the basic idea that a regular person named uh, Roger Thornhill is mistaken for an American spy named George Kaplan by the villains, uh, who are played by James Mason and Martin Landau. Uh, this leads to Thornhill trying to clear his name and trying to stay ahead, step ahead of the bad guys, while the real American spies are trying to use Thornhill's antics to their advantage. This leads to a cross-country trip from the United Nations building in New York all the way to Mount Rushmore. While Hitchcock wasn't able to film at the real UN building, uh, the Mount Rushmore Visitor Center that they use in the film is an actual place. Um, it also features uh, one of my favorite on-screen flubs, where a gun goes off and a kid famously puts his hands on his ears before the shot goes off. But even with it, little issues like that, I mean, there's a lot to love about this movie. In fact, I was considered mentioning this one on the Perfect Ten list because it's just that good. Wow. I, I knew about Hitchcock's influences on horror, but I had no idea he was such a huge influence on James Bond films as well. 
I mean, 27 films in that franchise and countless other spy movies can all trace their roots back to Hitchcock, too. I mean, that just blows me away. I, I might have to track down North by Northwest. Uh, but why don't you get into the next film from Hitchcock you wanted to talk about, Steve? Yeah, let me then know what you think if you ever do. I mean, it might be on HBO Max. Uh, but to switch gears, uh, To Catch a Thief from 1955 is a movie that I bring up a lot because it was a huge influence on Blitz, uh, particularly on the uh, Night Spider character. Um, Hitchcock plays a lot with the idea of mistaken identity, but I think it really works here. Uh, the concept is that a retired thief named John Roby, a.k.a. the cat, uh, comes out of his life of leisure when a copycat thief starts a, a crime wave. Uh, this movie is the second major Hitchcock film to feature Cary Grant. Um, actually, it might have been third by then. And it also starred uh, Grace Kelly before she became the Princess of Monaco. Um, in fact, this film was where uh, Kelly first married uh, Prince Rainier of Monaco, who she later married the year after the movie was released. Uh, the movie was set in France, but it was filmed in Monaco. And it's one of the strongest points of the film is how well the Monaco setting is used. Um, the John Roby character was admittedly a huge influence on uh, Roland Travis uh, from Blitz. While I don't exactly see Roland looking exactly like Harry Grant, he does carry some of the mannerisms and the ways of speaking. Um, I also draw a lot on the fact that Roby is always all under suspicion by the police, even though he wasn't active as the cat for years and had earned an official pardon. Um, I always treat the uh, life of crime as a bad reputation like that as a stain that is very hard to get out, no matter how hard you try. And Hitchcock took this approach with Roby, who had often had to elude and evade the cops while also trying to find and, and catch the bad guy so he can clear his name. Uh, Roby doesn't approach the job like a hero would, but like a criminal. Uh, he uses his criminal context for information. He deceives people. He creates fake identities to get into places. And generally, he uses trickery to accomplish his goal. Uh, this is another quality that found its way into Roland. Um, the final uh, sequence of To Catch a Thief is really clever, and you get into a fun rooftop chase between the two cats. It involves a masquerade ball, which Roby uses some good sleight of hand to elude the police while he chases the new cat. I don't want to spoil the identity of the fake cat, but it's set up pretty well. Um, I'll also admit that the copycat thief is an influence on another character coming up in Blitz, but it's too soon to talk about that yet. But the tone and flavor to catch a thief had a big impact on how I see Night Spider and the way I approach writing him and the criminals around him. That's interesting. Uh, I, I guess I have a few questions. Um, how does a high-level thief go about getting a pardon? Also, I'm looking forward to seeing that side of Night Spider. Uh, is that stuff coming up soon? And lastly, uh, I can't help but think of Mel Gibson's film Payback. I mean, they're not exactly the same at all. But uh, the idea of a criminal going after a bad guy using his criminal connections is definitely there. Uh, but I, leave, I believe you had one more film from the great Alfred Hitchcock to go over, didn't you, Steve? Yeah, uh, sure. Um, before I get to that, though, I can answer your questions. Um, on the question about Night Spider, yes, that, that stuff is coming up in future issues of Blood, so I just can't get into specifics yet. Um, now, Roby, um, as to the other question, uh, Roby fought alongside the resistance in World War II, and his war record and his record of good behavior was enough to earn clemency from the French government. I doubt that would be an easy thing to pull off today. <laughs> as for payback, uh, that is a fair point. Um, it was lo based loosely on the De Donald Westlake novels about the thief Parker, and that was um, lightly on my mind, too. I mean, the last film on my list, though, is the one we've talked about before, and that's Psycho. 
Um, I was honestly torn between this one and Vertigo, which only came out a few years before this. But I have to bring up Psycho because you've actually seen it, and it was a <laughs> and it was a complete sea change from the way horror films were made up to that point. Also, as we also noted in the slasher episode, um, the movie had a huge impact on movies like Halloween, uh, the original Friday the Thirteenth, and Scream. Uh, the story was based on a story by Robert Block, who lived fairly close to the serial killer Ed Gein. Uh, Gein would eventually be an important model for Norman Bates, but I'd go back and look at the slasher episode for more detailed coverage of that. Now, um, Norman Bates is one of the great classic uh, slasher villains, in part because he's a very human character. Uh, this was decades before the slasher became a supernatural killing machine, which started with Halloween and Michael Myers. Now, on the surface, Bates seems like a normal hotel owner, and his conversations with Janet Lee early on don't seem that disturbed, but the roots of his insanity run deep, having been traumatized really badly by his domineering mother, that she becomes a secondary personality inside his head. Uh, Anthony Perkins plays the character perfectly, maybe a little too well, because that role dominated his entire career afterwards. Um, I also want to mention how brilliant this movie is, is in setting Janet Lee as the heroine of the movie, and then she turns out to be a total red herring. She's not the heroine, she's the victim. Um, this film takes its time building up the life of Marion Crane, I mean, showing you the kind of person she was and how she ended up at the base motel. And then she gets stabbed gruesomely on screen, uh, and her sister, played by Vera Miles, becomes the real heroine of the film. I mean, it's a move uh, we've seen done again a few times, but never as well as this. Um, I, I think it's fair to say this is one of Hitchcock's masterpieces. Oh, it definitely is. Um, you know, you mentioned Psycho's influence on Halloween, particularly in how it was shot and the lack of gore and Scream with how the audience is led to believe that Drew, Drew Barrymore's character will likely be the final girl. Uh, but she is surprisingly killed up killed off just like Janet Lee's character, Marion Crane. And we covered those specifically in the slasher episode in more, more detail. But I have to note something that was taken uh, for Friday the 13th uh, from a line Norman Bates said, and that is a boy's best friend is his mother. That line directly inspired Jason Voorhees' strong relationship with his mother. And knowing that certainly explained Jason, explains Jason's madness about his mother as well, since Norman was the inspiration there. Uh, right. I mentioned in the Slasher episode that Friday the 13th Part 1 was an inversion of Psycho. So instead of the killer being a son dressing up as his mother and killing people, we have a mother dressing up as her son and killing people. So that <laughs> totally makes sense to me. <laughs> I have to say that of the Hitchcock films I have seen, I think Psycho is definitely my favorite and the one I have seen the most. Uh, but I do remember liking The Birds as well. Uh, for me, though, Psycho was so memorable uh, because I hadn't ever seen a black and white film like it before. And my appreciation for it has only uh, grown over the years. But more than, the, more than just the black and white aspect, most of the films in the horror genre I had seen from the 50s and 60s were like old sci-fi and universal monsters. Um, and those were okay. Uh, in, in fact, uh, I'm, I'm, actually, <laughs> I'm actually still kind of afraid of murky water because of the creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> but Psycho was different. Uh, while the hotel itself was somewhat isolated being off the highway, uh, the fact that it happened in a motel and in the house brought the terror closer to home than a far-off castle or another planet or something. 
Also, the only other film listed as starting the slasher genre was Peeping Tom, and I'm here to tell you that movie sucked. Uh, <laughs> the killer had a knife attached to the stick that was attached to the end of a camera, and the women would basically have to stand there and act terrified as he slowly approached them with the knife and the camera. I mean, it was totally ridiculous, and portrayed the women was completely without agency, just, just petrified. Uh, I only bring that up because Psycho was leaps and bounds beyond Peeping Tom and quality and believability in my book psycho started the craze and therefore it started the genre but that is just my opinion uh that's a fair point i mean you're probably for more of a fan of the birds fan than i am though which i find really interesting <laughs> but i do agree that both that film and psycho uh, laid a lot of the groundwork for modern horror films so uh speaking of groundbreaking directors who changed the game for genre films uh why don't we get to your next pick sure steve James Cameron is my favorite director because he's practically a jack of all trades when it comes to making films. And more often than not, he's also the writer. And I just got a thing for writer directors. There's just something I really like about the original storyteller getting to see their vision through to the screen. I feel like I'm getting the purest version of the in the films. Uh, Cameron is regarded as an innovative filmmaker in the industry as well, as it's as not easy to work with. And you'll note that not being easy to work with, work for is something that Cameron and Scott have in common. I don't know why, but apparently that's the thing for directors I like. <laughs> Cameron has quite a volatile temper, and he is a perfectionist. This is because he knows exactly what he wants on the film. Uh, and what he wants the film to be and how he wants it to look. Apparently, he can even be scary on set as his dictatorial uh, directing style uh, does not help matters. Uh, Kate Winslet commented that there were times in the filming of Titanic that she was genuinely afraid. But for all of the complaints I read, many of those same people could not deny the greatness of the finished product. Cameron makes exceptional movies. Avatar and Titanic are the highest and third highest grossing films of all time earning $2.91 billion and $2.19 billion, respectively. Cameron has directed the, the first two of the five films in history to gross over $2 billion worldwide. In 2010, Time Magazine named Cameron as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Cameron is also an environmentalist and runs several sustainability businesses. But there is more to James Cameron than just being a nightmare to work with and, and to why I'm a fan of his. Cameron is an expert on deep sea exploration and has contributed to advancements in underwater filming and remotely operated vehicles. Honestly, that would be cool enough on its own, but but James Cameron, with the help of uh, Vince Pace, helped develop the 3D fusion camera. That's a bit of that innovation I was talking about. But there is more to him than films. Check this out. In 2011, Cameron became a National Geographic Explorer in Residence and is an expert in deep sea exploration in part because of his work on the Abyss from 1989 and Titanic from 1997 and his childhood fascination with shipwrecks. Since joining National Geographic, he has produced many documentaries on the subject of deep sea exploration, including Ghosts of the Abyss in 2003 
2003 and Aliens of the Deep in 2005. He also made two other documentaries, including Earthship.tv and Expedition Bismarck. In 2012, he dove five miles to the bottom of the New Britain Trench uh, with Deep Sea Challenger, and 19 days later, uh, Cameron reached the Challenger Deep, the deepest part of the Mariana Trench, uh, by himself, the first man to ever do that. He spent more than three hours exploring the ocean floor and discovered new species of sea cucumber, uh, squid worm, and a giant single-celled amoeba. That's amazing. I mean, Cameron is an interesting guy, that is for sure. I mean, I love the fact that he took what was basically his hobby and made a film around it, and that became one of the top-selling films of all time. I mean, he makes this ton of money, and then he uses not just for filmmaking, but real scientific discovery and making those discoveries known and understandable. I mean, he's even done an appearance on Mythbusters. Oh, man, he was on Mythbusters? I love that show. I'm, I'm going to have to track down that episode. Uh, but when it but when it comes to filmmaking, I really love that Cameron just jumped in there and learned as he went. I appreciate that in particular because that's basically what I did with Almond Comics. I also love that he he learned the ropes working from several di working several different jobs on other films, which helped him get a well balanced perspective of making a film. But being on those sets also taught him more about making movies in general as he picked up little tips and tricks along the way. Uh, Cameron's first attempt at making a film uh, as the writer, director, and producer was in 1978 with the film Xenogenesis uh, that he did with, his, uh, with a friend of his. The, the film was largely shot in Cameron's living room, and he just learned what, he, what to do as he was doing it. The funding for the film was pulled after the first demo of the movie was shown to the dentist he got the money from. Cameron has said that working on Xenogenesis was like being a doctor doing his first surgical procedure. So, so Geno, Geno, Xenogenesis would not be his first film. However, Cameron was soon hired as a production assistant on Rock and Roll High School from 1979. Long, not long after, he was hired as a miniature model maker at Roger Corman Studios and then as an art director for Roger Corman's Battle Beyond the Stars in 1980. Jim Cameron also carried out the special effects for John Carpenter's Escape from New York in 1981. A he was a production designer on Galaxy of Terror from 1981 as well. He was a special effects director on Piranha 2, The Spawning from 1982, and that job morphed into actually directing a major film for the first time when the original director left but Cameron had the same struggles that the original director had uh, to such a degree that despite directing it he does not consider uh, it his first film we talked in the Terminator episode about how one of the inspirations for the Terminator was a dream that Cameron had well feeling a bit disillusioned with his experience on Piranha 2 and by being in Rome and dealing with a pretty serious fever is when Cameron had that nightmare about the robot crawling towards him to kill him, which inspired the Terminator from 1984. And that is what really put Cameron on the map. James Cameron uh, also co-wrote Rambo First Blood Part Two with Sylvester Stallone in 1985. He produced as well as wrote the story and the screenplay for Strange Days in 1995. And let me just say, if you have not seen Strange Days, you need to. Uh, he also produced as well as wrote the screenplay for Alita uh, Battle Angel. He co-created the TV character Dark Angel with Charles H. Egley, uh, Cameron's television debut. And he wrote her, he, he not only wrote her story, but also 42 episodes. And that show was awesome. That is another one you should go back and watch if you haven't seen it. It was also the first time I remember seeing Jessica Alba in something. But 
Cameron also wrote uh, 28 episodes of Terminator, the Sarah Connor, Sarah Connor Chronicles. Uh, Cameron also directed numerous videos and video shorts and four documentaries. Uh, but he has written and directed Aliens, uh, The Abyss, Terminator, uh, T2, True Lies, Titanic, and Avatar. He was also producer or executive producer on 46 other films, TV series, and documentaries. Uh, James Cameron also co-founded the production company's Lightstorm Entertainment in 1990, a visual effects company called Digital Domain in 1993, and Earthship Productions with his brother in 1998. Basically, if you're not impressed with all of that, I gotta wonder what you're looking for. Yeah, I can't argue with any of that. I mean, Cameron has made a number of science fiction classics, including all the movies you just listed. I mean, he's also like George Lucas in that he was also responsible for improving the visual effects game in many cases with quantum leaps forward and what can be shown on screen. I also have to shout out Alita Battle Angel as a personal favorite of mine. That's an awesome movie that needs a sequel and I hope it finally gets one. But uh, I think there's another Cameron film you really wanted to dive into, isn't that right, Mike? Oh, there definitely is, Steve. Uh, James Cameron wrote and directed his sixth film, True Lies, uh, in 1994. Uh, it is based on the 1991 French comedy uh, La Totale. Uh, True, uh, True Lies was the first Lightstorm enter entertainment project to be distributed under Cameron's multi-million dollar product production deal with 20th Century Fox, as well as the first major production for his visual effects company, Digital, Do Digital Domain. It was also the first film ever to cost a hundred million to make. I guess it's a good thing the film did so well, huh? True Lies grossed $378 million worldwide at the box office, becoming, becoming the third highest grossing film of 1994 behind The Lion King and Forrest Gump. That's impressive if you know how, how well Lion King and Forrest Gump did. Uh, Two Lies stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as Harry Tasker, a family man that is secretly a spy. Jamie Lee Curtis as Helen Tasker, Harry's wife. Elijah Dusku plays uh, Dana Tasker, Harry and Helen's daughter. Tom Ar Arnold plays Albert Gibb Gibson, Harry's partner. Grant Heslov uh, plays Faisal, uh, Gibson's partner. And Charlton Heston in probably his most one-dimensional character I've ever seen, Spencer Tribley, uh, who is Harry and Gibson's and Faisal's boss. Uh, Bill Paxton plays the hilariously pathetic Simon, uh, the used car salesman that constantly tries to scam women into thinking he's a spy or an undercover cop, but in truth, he's just an absolute coward. Um, Art Malik as the terrorist Salim Abu Aziz, and last but not least, Tia Carrera as Juna Skinner, uh, the antiquities dealer working with the terrorist. Uh, True Lies is a movie that I enjoyed, but I hadn't seen it in quite a long time. Um, I really love the whole premise, which upends the whole James Bond formula in a fun way. The entire cast is really good, and they all get moments of shine. And I'll be honest, I love that the daughter of Arnold and Laurie Strode is Faith from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> That's the perfect casting. It's a very charming family, and you like all of them. Um, I also have to say that Charlton Heston is basically old-school Nick Fury in this movie, and that's great. Um, also, uh, Tia Carrera would go on after this to play a Lara Croft-type character on a show called Relic Hunter. Um, I'm guessing her role as uh, Juno Skinner was a pretty large reason for that. I didn't know that about the about that Buffy connection. That, that is actually pretty cool. I also didn't know about Rec Relic Hunter. Uh, the only other place I've seen Tierra Carrera uh, was Wayne's World. <laughs> so, I mean, should I check out Relic Hunter? I mean, is it worth watching? 
it was a pretty minor show even at the time. I, I loved her casting in that kind of role, but I don't remember the show itself being that compelling. But it was a long time ago, and I, I might see it differently if I were to watch it today. I can certainly understand that. I feel totally different seeing things now. As for True Lies, it is a solid action comedy with a spy twist. It is a fun movie with some really great action scenes in it, as long as you don't pick it apart too much. And that way, True Lies is a lot like the 80s action movies that made films like True Lies possible. But of course, Cameron's signature type of action, which I would, which I would say is big, fantastic, and whenever possible, turned up to 11. At the same time, I think that True Lies brought something uh, newer to the table with this particular brand of comedy, in an action film and there was some pretty funny moments in that film most of them involving the late bill paxton <laughs> not all of them but typical action comedies of its day were full of one-liners and testosterone but i really like the family angle and the stronger female characters of helen and dana strong female characters are a staple of cameron's work that have been that have been on going on since the beginning that was actually something that cameron and ridley scott have in common i think that i think why they were both able uh, to do ellen ripley so well oh definitely i mean cameron gave us both ripley and sarah connor and there's no question that they're among the best action heroines in the business but true lies is a very different film by cameron's standards i mean he, he didn't often do comedic films but this one really landed it's one of those movies that works just for just about any audience and that's not an easy thing to achieve and then after this came his big massive blockbuster that set a whole new standard so uh why don't we talk a bit about that Hell yeah. I'm all over that. Uh, James Cameron's seventh film, Titanic, came out in 1997 and combined elements of a disaster movie, a period, a period piece, and a romance into one epic movie. Cameron directed, wrote, produced, and co-edited Titanic in his typical trying-to-do-everything fashion. He got a great cast to work with on this film as well as with Leonardo DiCaprio as Jack Dawson and Kate Winslet as Rose DeWitt Care. Uh, although Gloria Stewart would do the voice over for the narration of Rose Dawson Calvert uh, at the end. Uh, Billy Zane is Kyle Hockley, uh, Rose's fiance. Kathy Bates as the unsinkable Molly Brown. Uh, Frances Fisher as uh, Ruth DeWitbecare, uh, Rose's widowed mother. Uh, Bernard Hill. Uh, Jonathan Hyde as Victor uh, Garber as uh, Thomas, Thomas Andrews, the shipbuilder. You may also recognize him as Martin Stein, uh, one half of Firestorm from The Flash and Legends of tomorrow and bill paxton is brock lovett the guy looking for the heart of the ocean as a quick aside i will say that uh, victor garber somebody i also know from uh, as one of the admirals on the orville which i dig um i'll be honest though and i'll admit that i avoided this movie for a very long time i mean it was honestly a hyperversion thing uh where this movie was everywhere and i just got so tired of hearing about it that i didn't want to see it uh for the longest time i mean i called it the hype will go on <laughs> After some years and the fear finally faded away, I, I, fin I did finally give this movie a chance. And, and while I think this movie works, it's not my favorite thing Cameron has done. I, I think that it was the start of a creative shift for Cameron away from the things he did in the 80s and early 90s and trying to dive literally into new territory that he hadn't done before. Um, that's fair and totally cool, but it didn't appeal to me that much. Um, I can't deny it made a massive amount of bank, though, so it clearly appealed to a lot of people. 
<laughs> that hype will go on shit is funny dude <laughs> but let's get into a bit of the making of stuff of the film uh titanic had a production budget of 200 million at the time it was the most expensive movie ever made and i got to think that a huge chunk of that money went into the set which had to be pretty elaborate towards the end when the ship was sinking uh, but another big chunk had to come from cameron taking several dies down to the bottom of the atlantic ocean in the uh to the RMS Titanic uh, starting in 1995 to capture footage of the wreck, which would later be used in the film. I, I've looked into it for stories I've written. A single dive can cost tens of thousand dollars just to rent the submersibles per day. Hundreds of hundred thousand or more for some of them. And that's to say nothing about the cost of the ship to take you out there and the crew to manage everything. I bet a couple million at least was spent on those dives. Uh, but it was certainly worth it. Titanic received strong critical acclaim and became the highest grossing film at all time. And it held that position for 12 years until Cameron broke his own record with Avatar in 2010. You know, if Cameron was able to bottle whatever it is that gives him these ludicrous ticket sales, I'd love <laughs> to buy one. <laughs> I just find it amazing that he was able to break the all-time sales record, not once, but twice. Um, but I guess if you're James Cameron, you can do pretty much anything you want at that point. <laughs> I mean, we've seen Cameron be able to leverage a lot of influence in the studio just because he was able to make Titanic, never mind Avatar. So the fact that he was able to spend that kind of money and make it all back multiple times over is pretty impressive. That is very impressive, as you say, uh, to do even once, but twice. Uh, nobody has done that to my knowledge. But that's not the only thing I find impressive about it. I have to take a moment to talk about the brilliance of Titanic. Not only is it epic and just a flat-out amazing period piece, and I love the story, but Cameron managed to write a story that aside from the fictional storyline, everyone knew the ending of and it still made billions. I mean, not a single person uh, went in there surprised when the ship sank. Most of us have heard of the sinking of the Titanic since we were kids, even if I didn't know uh, all of the details. Uh, but it didn't matter. I love the film back in 1997 and i still love it today i have seen it a good 13 or 14 times and i will continue to watch it and enjoy it again and again <laughs> yeah that's absolutely fair although i will say i mean as much as part of it is that we knew the ending and that the ship was sinking i didn't th i thought it was fairly obvious that jack was going to die too but that's an aside anyway um uh, a lot of people really love this film and it had a great deal of appeal across a number of audience segments I mean, you have the romance, the historical aspect, the big action scenes as the ship gradually goes under. Um, I think Cameron was able to hit something primal with this film, and it definitely paid off for him. But then, as you said, I mean, he found a way to top even that, didn't he? Oh, yes, he certainly did, Steve. James Cameron's eighth film, not counting documentaries, of course, called Avatar, also marketed as James Cameron's Avatar, came out in 2009. Uh, James Cameron directed, wrote, produced, and co-edited uh, Avatar like he had done with Titanic. In fact, he first started developing Avatar way back in 1994 when he wrote an 80-page treatment for it. Avatar was originally intended to be released uh, after Titanic in 19. 1999. However, as I have mentioned, Cameron knows exactly how he wants his film to look and what he wants to see on screen. And at that time, technology was just not on par with his vision. And so he had to wait. However, by 2005, Cameron had started working on the language of the Navi. And by 2006, he was working on the screenplay as well as the world of Pandora and the universe Avatar would be set in. Avatar was officially budgeted at $237 million 
million. Due to a groundbreaking array of new visual effects, Cameron achieved in cooperation with Weta Digital in Wellington, New, New Zealand. And yes, that is the same company founded by Peter Jackson, Richard Taylor, and Jamie Selkirk in 1993. They invented an entirely new mocap filming technology and technology that found that finally caught up with uh, Cameron's vision for the film. The film stars Sam Worthington as Jake Sully. You may recognize him from his role in Terminator Salvation as Marcus Wright, also from 2009, uh, or his role as Perseus in the new Clash of the Titan films uh, from 2010 and 2012. They got a gr they got the great Zoe Saldana as uh, Natiri. You might recognize her from her role as Gamora in the MCU. Uh, Stephen Lang is Colonel Miles Quartridge, who also who I recognized from his role as uh, Kalar Zim from 2011's uh, Conan the Barbarian. Uh, Michelle Rodriguez as Trudy Cacon. Uh, Most of you probably know her from Lost and Fast of the Furious franchise, and maybe even from the first Resident Evil movie. And last but not definitely not least is Sigourney Weaver as Dr. Grace Augustine, but I'm sure you all know who she is. Oh, for sure. I mean, well, she's certainly someone who goes back with Cameron a long, long way. Uh, Sigourney was probably only more than happy to work with him again for the right project. I do recall her defending him actively on Aliens when the crew started turning against him there. And uh, Cameron clearly respects her as well. Um, I'm glad that Weaver did come back for this movie, and I'm glad. hope she gets another chance to work with Cameron. Uh, they're both science fiction legends. I mean, especially when they're working together on something. Uh, I can't really comment on this film that much, though, as I just don't remember much of it now. Fair enough. <clears throat> I personally love Avatar. It is on my all-time favorites list. I even own the three-disc extended collector's edition, which I recommend watching as it is better than the theatrical release. Uh, I really appreciate the detail that Cameron put into the world of Pandora. He completely developed an ecosystem, flora and fauna for the world. And honestly, for those who call it a derivative film, I have to ask if one film about this kind of behavior uh, by humans is enough. Do you know that we're doing the exact same things uh, the, the humans were doing to the Navi, to indigenous tribes all over the world, displacing and murdering people only to destroy the land for the almighty dollar? Uh, by the way, Cameron, uh, uh, Cameron is also actively taking part uh, in stopping this kind of those kind of things from happening. Uh, but you may have heard this story before, uh, but I think you have not heard it like this. Again, I think Cameron brought something totally new to the table while combining some familiar elements. But I understand if you don't like the film, we're, we're all entitled to our own opinions. And I, I don't want to try and force mine down your throat. I, I, I just had to share my little two cents there. Oh, no, that's a totally fair. And it is your list. I mean, rave about it all you want, man. Uh, I just can't really add too much about it myself. I mean, to be honest, I haven't watched that much of Avatar. And I don't remember much of what little I saw. It just it seemed to have a Dances with Wolves in Space vibe, which was my main impression of it. Um, I can't deny that Avatar was a huge technological achievement, though. And the animation on that film is absolutely first-rate work. Um, beyond that, I just don't have any deep feelings about it or the attachment to it that you obviously have. But... I don't want to take that away from your own appreciation of what Cameron did with that film. You know, maybe one day I might revisit it if it's ever free to stream. I mean, it's just not a movie that was really on my radar for a long time. But uh, what is it about James Cameron that really speaks to you, Mike? 
I suppose that Cameron's biggest influences on me are his world building and his ability to blend things together and come up with something new. Uh, Cameron is an intense world builder. He, he's also brilliant at laying it all out, and he does a good blend of dialogue and visuals to do it. Uh, that is something I put into my comics. Uh, but with Cameron's world building, I think that is evident in films like Titanic, where you really get a sense of uh, what life was like in the early 1900s, as well as what the people were like that were living in it. Uh, but he did it, he did it so smoothly uh, and gradually, and he eased us into it uh, until we were all up to our necks in it and before we even knew it uh or, or with movies like avatar and how much it went into the building of the world of pandora as far as his blending of ideas we have already talked about how he did that with terminator and everyone seems to only have that to say about avatar but i really think that while he may use familiar ideas they're used in such a way together that they are something different from where they came from I can totally understand where you're coming from there. I, I can see Cameron's grasps of world building on his other films, especially Aliens and the Terminator films. There are some writers and directors where you just know that they know tons of details about a setting, even if they only give you the barest amount of information. I feel like that when Cameron talks about the future war in Terminator and what the life of the human resistance was like. The brief freeze flashbacks and the opening scenes of Terminator 2 give a, you the barest glimpse of the future, but you feel like you know what that world is like just from what from that and what the characters like Reese have said about that timeline. It sounds like he put the same kind of thought into Pandora as well from what you described. He did. In fact, to my knowledge, Cameron put more time and work into Avatar and its sequels than any other film he has worked on. Uh, but quite frankly, I've rambled on for long enough. Uh, why don't we get to your second pick uh, for favorite director, Steve? I, I understand you had some difficulty with it like I did. Yeah, indeed I did. I, I had to do some thinking on my second director because there were a few very good candidates. I mean, I thought about Quentin Tarantino until I realized that my favorite films of his would cover uh, too much ground that we already went over in the Perfect Ten episode. So I ultimately decided to go with John Carpenter as that's one of the directors who is really formative for me. Also, not only is he a writer and a director, he's an excellent composer who made some truly classic themes uh, in his career, including the theme for Halloween. Um, although Carpenter is best known as a visionary director of action and horror films, his influences go back to the films of the 1950s. Uh, he was hugely influenced by John Ford and Howard Hawks westerns, uh, the original version of The Thing, and uh, classic SF films like uh, Forbidden Planets. Uh, he'd go back to that, uh, well, a few times in his career, especially with his own version of The Thing and Salt Creek 13, uh, which was basically a modern remake of Hawks' western Rio Bravo. At the same time, he's also done some truly mind-bending films like some of the ones we'll be discussing in a little bit. Uh, Carpenter is a director who isn't really restrained that much by genre, as he's done a bit of everything. So before I go into my picks for favorite films, uh, did you have any thoughts, Mike? I sure do. Um, well, I'm not as huge of a Carpenter fan as you are. Uh, the films of his that I do like, I like a whole lot. I mentioned Halloween before, but I have to mention that even the Terminator from 1984 was inspired by Halloween 1978 by John Carpenter. Uh, it is amazing how seminal that film was. So many horror movie makers list Halloween as a direct influence on their work. Uh, so that one was a favorite of mine from Carpenter. I'm also a big fan of Christine. Uh, 
Uh, but we'll talk more about that in our Stephen King adaptations episode. Another one I have to mention in light of your comments about Carpenter being unrestrained by genre that quite frankly, no one else brings up is Starman from 1984. Mm. It seems mm -hmm. like people remember the film fondly after I mention it, but I'm the only one I've ever heard of to actually bring it up as a favorite. <laughs> um, I've watched Starman as many times as I've watched Halloween from 1987, uh, 1978, just to give you an idea. Uh, but enough for me. Why don't we get into the first film that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, the main thing I remember from Starman is the yellow light go faster thing. <laughs> we'll <go on>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, for the first film by Carpenter, I'm going to discuss an offbeat film that ended up becoming a cult classic. That movie is Big Trouble in Little China, an Asian urban fantasy film about a truck driver who gets caught up in Eastern magic. Uh, Kurt uh, Russell is pretty much Carpenter's go-to actor, and he was the star in two of his biggest films, uh, The Thing and Escape from New York. In those films, Russell was a much more serious action star, and he was playing much more serious and hardcore characters. But in Big Trouble, uh, Russell plays it much more comedic, and in many ways, he's not really the hero at all. Uh, Kurt Russell was known for doing a really good John Wayne impression, and he leans heavily into it in the role of Jack Burton. Uh, thinking, looking back at it now, um, I suspect that Carpenter may have been influenced by the Green Hornet and Cato, uh, originally placed by Bruce Lee. Um, I mentioned this because that's the kind of dynamic that Jack Burton has with his partner, Wang. Wang is in many ways the hero of the movie. He's competent, he's a skilled martial artist, and he's the one with the most emotional investment and motivation with the plot. Wang is trying to rescue his girlfriend, while Burton is an outsider who just happens to get mixed up in all the craziness that's going on. Um, Burton is played mainly as a joke, while Wang is much more of a serious character and he gets plenty of cool moments. Um, it's a really cool twist on the 80s action formula, and it works. Burton is funny and an entertaining lead who survives in spite of a swaggering ego, but Wang is the one who really saves the day. I also have to add that the opening sequence of Big Trouble in Little China is one of Carpenter's best. You get Jack Burton on the radio talking nonsense on the Pork Chop Express, but man, is it funny. Have you paid your dues, Jack? Yes, sir, the check is in the mail. <laughs> All of this set against one of uh, Carpenter's best opening themes. The whole Pork Chop Express opener is one I find I watch uh, tend to watch over and over again, and I don't say that too often. <laughs> I have not seen Big Trouble in Little China, and with its cult classic status, I'm... I'm I'm a little ashamed of that, <laughs> but I honestly tried to find it streaming somewhere and, and I couldn't find it. Uh, but to tell you the truth, I have had the opportunity to watch it before and I haven't. It seems pretty over the top from the previews, but I am a big Green Hornet fan, mostly because of Kato, I might add. And that honestly sold me on watching it. I'm, I'm definitely going to check it out next time I see it available. I, I'm a huge Kurt Russell fan as well. Uh, but why don't we get into your second pick from John Park, John Carpenter, Steve? Absolutely. Um, I've talked a fair amount about Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy before this, but I can't mention Carpenter without picking at least one of those. Uh, In the Mouth of Madness is the one that I always come back to, and I watch this one fairly often. Uh, the premise of this film is that uh, John Trent, who's an insurance adjuster played uh, or investigator played by Sam Neill, um, who gets called in to look into the disappearance of a writer named Sutter Kane. Uh, Kane is basically H.P. Lovecraft by way of Stephen King, uh, who incidentally is an old friend of John Carpenter's. Uh, Carpenter, as we talked about, filmed the adaptation of Christine. Anyway, uh, Trent teams up with Kane's editor, uh, Linda Stiles, played by Julie Carmen, and they go on a road trip in the middle of nowhere to find Kane. From there, things get increasingly freaky and crazy, and it has the flavor of a Lovecraftian story in many respects. 
Um, as I may have said before, I love this movie because I think it describes the relationship between writers and their characters in a way I've rarely seen in film. Uh, this movie is extremely meta in the way and how it approaches the writing process, and it really does seem like madness. It's also a movie about uh, characters who break from the writer's script and how writers try to put rogue characters back on the plot rails. You really have to watch the movie to get an idea of what I mean by this. Um, I don't want to spoil too much, but I will say the ending is completely insane, like the rest of the movie, but also the right place to end the film. Um, also, the cast is excellent, including a lot of really uh, good actors in small roles. Um, Sam Neill is great in just about everything he's in, but John Trent is one of my favorite Neill roles, and it ranks alongside Event Horizon for me. Uh, Jorgen Prokenau doesn't appear too frequently, but he, when he does, he's extremely memorable, and he gets across the power of that character. You also get uh, actors like Charlton Heston, uh, Peter Jason, uh, Bernie Casey, David Warner, and John Glover in a small but memorable roles. And here's a fun fact. Hayden Christensen appears in a brief appearance as a newspaper kid on a bike. Yes, Anakin Skywalker himself shows up in this movie. Um, given the themes of this movie and how bizarre this movie gets, it's strangely appropriate casting. Um, Carpenter also delivers a good opening theme to this movie as well, even if it's not quite up there with some of the other scores he's done. I, I love going back over old movies and seeing all the actors I've grown to love as adults making little cameo appearances in movies. I don't know why. It's just fun. And that sounds like a good eye grab there. Also, I do like the Stephen King vibe in the film uh, with that writer aspect. And I did not know that he and Carpenter were old friends, uh, but I think that's pretty cool. Uh, but let's get into the next film we wanted to talk about because, well, I've actually seen this one. <laughs> oh, awesome. Uh, for the last Carpenter movie I'll bring up, I'll talk about They Live. Uh, this movie stars uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, who plays a uh, wandering uh, drifter uh, who is homeless and comes to L.A. looking for work. He eventually finds a job in construction while he stays among a group of nearby vagrants. However, Piper ends up stumbling on an alien conspiracy and finds a pair of mysterious glasses. And when he wears them, he's able to see the world around him as it really is, and he realizes that the world is being subliminally programmed by a race of aliens that have conquered the Earth, and nobody knows it's even happening. Uh, this leads him to join a small band of humans who are resisting the aliens, even though the world has no idea that the war is even going on. They Live is a really clever film, and it's very much a warning film against the dangers of propaganda and corporate advertising. A lot of the messages the aliens are sending are things like obey, consume, and other subliminal instructions. Um, the aliens are an allegory for corporate control, and it's shown that they have influence in media and in government. It's, it's a pretty frightening setup, and despite Piper's best efforts, it's a movie about one man fighting an entire system. That pretty much ends the way you might expect is all I'll say without spoiling it too much. Um, now, the movie had a fair amount of impact, perhaps wider than I'd have thought at first glance. Some of They Live's most favorite lines were adopted by Duke Nukem in his various games. I'm here to kick ass and chew bubblegum, and I'm all out of gum. Comes straight <laughs> out of this movie. But I also think that this movie had an influence on the Wachowskis as well. The whole idea of the world being subject to system of control by a hostile species and reality not being what anyone thinks it is comes back later in The Matrix. Finally, I'm a huge fan of Keith David especially in Pitch Black and Mass Effect, and he's really good in this movie. Um, his character's relationship with Roddy Piper is conflicted, and it goes through a lot of different motions in the film. Um, there's actually a really good fight between Piper and David in one scene as Piper tries to convince David of the alien threat, and uh, David does better in that fight than you'd think. Um, this actually ends up leading to a stronger friendship between them by the end of the film. They Live is really an underrated kind of classic, but that's one that's worth sitting through if you haven't. 
I'm not sure that I have much to add to that. You seem to cover the bases pretty well, but I will say that They Live is definitely another Carpenter film that I like. Uh, my dad turned me on to it when I was a kid. I, I probably watched it at least four or five times. It is definitely a quoted movie, and the gifts are pretty rampant too, <laughs> uh, but it is understandable. I, I didn't get all of the uh, the corporate programming stuff when I was a kid, though. I just, I just didn't have the world experience to get it, uh, but there is something I can add to this, and that is the fight between Piper and David. Uh, that fight was legendary. I mean, that was one one of the better knockdown drag out fights that I have seen in a movie. I don't know if you know this, but <laughs> there is an episode of South Park where uh, Timmy and Jimmy have a fight in the alleyway, except Jimmy is trying to get Timmy to put on a hat, not glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't seen the South Park parody until you pointed out to me before the show, but you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the setting looks the same and the level of brutality is on par with the Piper versus David fight too. It's basically a fight where Keith David wants to live in ignorance, but Roddy Piper just will not let him. I mean, it definitely feels like a knockdown, drag out, and ugly fist fight, as you say. And they both get bloody pretty bad by the end. It's an awesome scene. And I love that South Park did their own take on it. Oh, yeah, I really love that, too. I particularly like that it was so obvious. I mean, that scene where he's on top of him, like, with the knee into the nuts, like, ten times. Yeah. I mean, spot on. <laughs> I recognize that from They Live the first time I saw it. It was really well done, considering Timmy is in a wheelchair and Jimmy's using crutches. Uh, but that about wraps up our conversation on our favorite directors. And it also wraps up our third season of ORP. That's right. Next time you hear from us in January, we'll be in season four. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us. And thank you to our patrons who make this. I hope you've enjoyed hanging out with us on ORP today. I know that Steve and, that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to please share this episode and help us get the word out. That is indeed a big help, and uh, we want to thank you in advance for your support of uh, both listening and sharing this episode. Uh, it makes a lot to us, uh, and we'll see you in two weeks.